Malachi chapter 1, God's word says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and on the hills, and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people of the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. Lord, we are often searching, we are longing, we are wanting something that will just make life complete, something that will satisfy us. May we see through your word that you are the drink that fills our thirst. You are the bread that satisfies our hunger. You are the satisfaction of all things. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Do you ever feel like you're being given the silent treatment? You know, some people, when they get angry, they yell, they have outbursts of anger, they let you know what they're thinking. Others fight not so loudly, they fight quietly. And you don't know what they're thinking, you think, what did I do? But their silence lets you know that something is wrong. Rather than actively breaking the peace, they passively break the peace. And thus, though they may not be yelling at you, you wish they would just say anything at all. They punish you with yelling, not with yelling, but with silence. Well, as I noted this morning, we're beginning a four-week series on the book of Haggai. And this book is remarkable because God speaks to Judah through the prophet for the first time since they were taken into exile. The minor prophets go in order. So before this, we read Zephaniah where he was warning that this was going to happen. And now there has been no word from the Lord since they have been taken into exile. Is God going to speak to us again? 
Now, there are already signs of God's mercy and compassion. You may know in 576 A.D., Nebuchadnezzar came in with Babylon and destroyed them, took them into exile. But then in 539, Cyrus, king of Persia, conquered Babylon, and he took a different approach to these conquered nations. He took more of the honey attracts, more flies than vinegar approach. So rather than oppressing all these nations, he said, y'all can go back to your homelands. We'll even pay to rebuild your cities and your temples. And you can read in Ezra 1 how Judah was one of the nations that benefited from this. So in Ezra, you can read in 539 BC, this was 37 years after they went into exile, Cyrus, king of Persia, gave them money and Ezra led the people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So about 50,000 of them, they journeyed back to Jerusalem. They made that 900-mile journey back to Jerusalem and they relayed the altar. They relayed the foundation of the temple. But then opposition arose from the surrounding nations and the rebuilding of the temple was delayed about 15 to 20 years. And near the end of this, Darius became the king, and that is the king mentioned here in the book of Haggai. And today, Haggai is going to show us that they didn't just stop building the temple because of the surrounding nations. They also stopped because their priorities have changed. And God breaks the silence with Judah by giving them four messages through Haggai. And they're easy to see because they're all dated. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, sixth month on the first day. If you relate that to our calendar, it would be somewhere near the end of August. Then chapter 2, it says, in the seventh month, on the 21st day. Gives another date and gives his message. Then in chapter 2, verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month, gives the day, third message. And then lastly, chapter 2, verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. So these last two, the third and fourth, were done somewhere in the middle of December. So Haggai and prophesized for a fourth month period here in 520 BC. But this first message, the one we're looking at today, confronts them because they have wrong priorities. And those wrong priorities have led them to not being able to find satisfaction. You know, satisfaction refers to several things, but the way we're using it right now is it refers to a mental and emotional state of contentment of joy, of being fulfilled. Well, God is going to show them the problem, and that is that they're seeking satisfaction in goods. He's going to show them the solution. Seek satisfaction in Him. And then He's going to show their faithful response. And if you look on a bulletin, that is the outline provided for you. So first, in verses 2 through 6, we see that they are seeking satisfaction in goods. And it would appear that the problem is, well, look, we aren't having fields that are bearing crops. We're not having all these things that we want. The temple's in ruins. But the issue is not the temple or their crops. The issue, God makes clear, is their priorities. And notice who says this. Verse 2, it's the Lord of hosts. Host is referring to armies. It's referring to his power. They might be tempted to think that, don't Persians have all the power? Didn't the Persians allow us to return and provide for the rebuilding of the temple? Don't the Persians protect us? Don't they have enemies that spread across multiple countries? Yes, it appears that way, but they would have no power if God did not first give it to them. God is the Almighty who stirred the heart of Cyrus to even do this. And he's not just the 
ruler of a few nations. He's the ruler of all galaxies, of the entire cosmos. And the Lord Almighty is the one who is giving them these messages. But notice how he refers to them in verse 2. He calls them these people. Now that's not really a warm, affectionate way to talk about those you love. Hey, these children over here, if they're yours, no, my people is how God refers to Israel and Judah when he loves them. He was showing their displeasure. And the people frustrate him because they say now is not the ideal time to work on God's house. But God responds in verses 3 and 4 by asking, Is it now time for you to have paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? ruins? And the contrast really shows the issue. The issue is not that they work on their houses, but while they're working on upgrades, decorations, and refinements, the house of God is lying in ruins. You know, the, one, the issue is one of distorted priorities, not necessarily wrong ones. Notice they aren't questioning that the temple needs to be rebuilt. They're not saying rebuilding it's unimportant. They're just saying, well, now is not the time. It's not convenient to do it now. However, it is convenient for them to be rebuilding and upgrading their own homes. And throughout Scripture, God shows us that faith means we put Him first and then we trust Him with everything else. These were the words read earlier from Matthew 6 where we're not to be anxious, but instead trust Him. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. And Haggai makes this point by using a subtle historical analogy. You may remember in 2 Samuel 7, King David wants to, rebuild, wants to build the temple. And the reason why is because he says, Is it right for me to live in a paneled house, the house of cedar, while the temple, the ark of God, is in a tent? And then Solomon, before he built the temple, said, I'm not going to build a house for me. I need to build a house for God first. And so Haggai is subtly saying, look, if the great kings David and Solomon cared more for God's house than their own, shouldn't you, who aren't even kings? Thus Judah should consider their ways. Literally, they're called to put to heart their ways. They must reflect and think about the implications of what's happening in their life. You know, what's happening is, they're seeking satisfaction in five things and they're all coming back empty. They're looking for it in crops, but they're coming back meager. And this is the time of harvest. So they would especially realize it. Second, they're looking at it in food, but they're not satisfied or drink, but they're not filled. Clothes, but they don't keep them warm. And jobs, but somehow it seems like their money purse has a hole because when they look in, nothing's in it. And they must stop and ponder, why is this happening? Specifically, they should stop and reflect on what God's prior words were and implications of what are happening. He's using language that is very similar to Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy told them blessings that would come from obedience and cursings that would come from disobedience. Specifically, it says in Deuteronomy 28, 38 through 40, You shall carry much seed in the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them. We should neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for your olives shall drop off. You know, the words of what would happen for disobedience are declared in Deuteronomy, and now they're happening, and God's saying, Consider 
And right after those verses in Deuteronomy, it says one of the sins, and that is Deuteronomy 28.47. This is happening because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. You know, the command of God is not just that we obey, but we do it with joy and delight. Now consider for a minute who these people are. You know, they are people who actually love God. This is evident by the fact they wanted to come back. They've been in Persia for 37 years, and yet they want to come back to Jerusalem. When I was a school teacher at various times, I had students whose parents had come, maybe illegally, maybe not. But they were now my students, and they weren't citizens in the U.S., but they had grown up here. And in just 15 years, they would say, wherever their parents went, that's not our country. I'm a, I'm a U.S. Maybe not a citizen, but I feel like a U.S. citizen. This is the way I talk. This is the way I act. In 15 years, they had been so assimilated that this is now home. Well, this isn't 15 years. 37 years these people had lived in another land. Jerusalem's not home. Home is there, and yet they love God. They love His temple so much that they want to come back. They want to rebuild. They want God to be honored. And you can read in Ezra, when they came, they gave a free will offering of what would account to millions of dollars today. You know, if there was ever preaching to the choir, this is it. And yet, unless the choir is in heaven, the choir still needs to be preached to. Because now they've become distracted and serving God doesn't have the joy and urgency it once had. You know, they haven't stopped believing in God. They're not now immoral people. God and His work have just slipped from being their main priority. And they should make the connection that their ruined fields exist because God's temple lies in ruins. You know, and we're prone very much to be like these people. You know, we haven't stopped believing in God. We're not living immoral lives. We still go to church. We still obey. However, if we're honest, it can be rather dull or wrote, we're just doing it because we have to. It's moved from being our joyful priority. You know, we can remember a time when there was excitement to do God's work, but now there's children, a job, seemingly endless lists of tasks that have to be done around the house. And in the frenetic pace of life, God has slowly drifted from being the priority. Now, it's not wrong to be concerned about our health, our house, our family. But have those morphed into a greater priority, concern, and focus in doing each of those than you have for God. And since God is their, not their greatest delight, God's gifts no longer satisfy them. David Myers, writing in 1997, says, Compared with Americans in 1957... Today we own twice as many cars per person, eat out twice as often, and enjoy endless other commodities that weren't even around then. Big screen TVs, microwave ovens, SUVs, and handheld wireless devices, to name a few. But are we any happier? Compared to their grandparents, today's young adults have grown up with much more affluence, slightly less happiness, and much greater risk of depression and assorted social pathology are becoming much better over the last four decades has not been accompanied by one iota of increased subjective well-being. 
And this has not gotten any better, even though we now live 21 years later. We have more possessions, more things. And yet, Gene Twins writes, rates of depression, teen depression, and suicide have skyrocketed since 2011. And girls have borne the brunt of the rise in depressive symptoms among today's teens. For boys, depressive symptoms rose 21% between 2012 and 2015. In the same span, rates among girls increased 50%. The rates of suicide for both increased too. Male suicides doubled. Female suicides increased threefold. Now, whether it's the people of Judah 2,600 years ago, or our modern society today, or if you're the Rolling Stones years ago, we sing, I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try, and I try, and I try, and I try, I can't get no satisfaction. And it's because we're not primarily satisfied with God that all the gifts of God have lost their satisfaction. You know, it's when we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness that all these things will be added to us and be satisfying to us. You know, the pleasures of earth can be enjoyable, but they will also all burn and perish. Randy Alcorn writes, When one of the wealthiest men in history... John D. Rockefeller died. His accountant was asked, How much did John D. leave? The accountant replied, He left all of it. You can't take anything with you. The pleasures of earth are great, but they're not eternal. God is eternal. He can satisfy you, not just now, but for eternity. Now we need to be careful, though, that we don't apply this message wrongly. You know, what we, we can do is we can take this one historical example and think it applies to all people. But this is just one story. We need to realize that not all wealth is a sign of God's blessing. And not all poverty is a sign of God's discipline. You can read in Psalm 73 that the, right, the wicked sometimes prosper. And in Job that sometimes the righteous suffer. And yet, God often uses calamities as he does here, to discipline us and refine us. Trials in our health, wealth, or relationship should cause us to pause and think. It might be that we have sin that we need to repent of. But it might also be that there is no sin in your life and you just live in a fallen world. So we need to be careful how we apply this. However, when the pleasures of life no longer satisfy, rather than booking another vacation, seeking joy in the next item, getting a new or better relationship, we might need to reorient ourselves. We might need to seek satisfaction in God. That's our second point in verses 7 through 11. In verse 7, God again calls them to consider or take to heart their ways. Rather than continuing in their self-indulgent, self-centered, self-focused life, they should seek God's glory. They should seek God and His desires. So verse 8, God tells them to go up to the mountains and get panels of wood for God's house, not their own. Doing this, it says, will please God and bring Him glory. Now, pleasure is a loaded word, for this was used, same word was used by the priest to describe a pleasing aroma or a pleasing sacrifice to God. In other words, their actions 
will bring pleasure, satisfaction, a smile to God. You consider that amazing truth. The infinite, unneeding, eternal, unchanging God who doesn't need a single thing it delights in our seeking Him and His kingdom. You know, almost every parent has been given a picture of something. And the children come, child comes bouncing up and they go, Dad, I made this for you. And you look at it and go, Oh, you, you made a horse, thank you. And they go, No, it's you. Oh, I see it, thank you. That's wonderful, I love it. And we delight in their delight in what they give us. And I think our Father sits in the heavens and goes, you are trying to serve me. That's what you are trying to do. Oh, thank you. I don't know what they're doing, but they're trying to serve me. It's wonderful. Now, I don't say that to say that God accepts all service, but the point is, God is pleased when His children delight to serve Him, to honor Him, to put His kingdom first. As well, God will be glorified, He says, by the finishing of the temple. And the glory word for glory means weightiness, heaviness. And it's showing that, look, if they're going to use their resources for Him, there's something to Him. God has meaning. He has weight to who He is. Again, seek first His kingdom, His righteousness. And in verse 9, God turns once more to say what they're doing and points out the lack of satisfaction that it brings them. They looked for much, but it ended up amounting to nothing. In fact, when they brought it home, God himself blew it away. Well, why? It says, because God's own house lies in ruins while they work on theirs. You see, God loves us too much to let us lose infinite joy by being temporarily satisfied. You know, the phrase here about them, the people of Judah, they busy themselves with their own house. It literally says, one runs to his own house. In other words, they're eagerly, they're joyously looking out for themselves. But that goes back to Deuteronomy 28, 47, where what are they called to eagerly, joyfully do? Serve the Lord. They're running to what they love, themselves, not God. And due to this, God says the heavens are going to hold back the moisture and the ground will no longer give its produce. Uh-oh, clearly the Bible here is unscientific. The sky bring down the dew? I mean, come on. We all know dew is not dropped from the heavens. Well, no, this is just speaking from the point of observation. There's nothing wrong with observing things and noting unless every newspaper is wrong and unscientific today to talk about a sunrise. Because technically the sun didn't rise because we're a heliocentric universe and we're spinning. So we're talking from the point of observation. From our point, the sun is rising. From their standpoint, the wake up, the heaven brought down the dew. It's not unscientific. It's the point of observation. But nonetheless, back to the point here. Nine things in verse 11 will be affected by the drought. Land, hills, grain, wine, oil, anything from the ground. Man, beasts, and all their labors. You know, it's an all-encompassing list. It describes different places, different types of crops and produce, and how even man and beast are affected. Nothing will be exempt from the effects of the drought. And if there was ever a town that didn't need an illustration about the effects of a drought, I think we're in it. But the passage is 
driving us to ask, what is the aim of our life? What is worthy of our life being spent pursuing it? Are you seeking the pleasure and glory of God? Or are you seeking it for yourself? And as we apply this, we need to be careful to not make the mistake about talking about caring for our church building. You know, this passage often comes up, gets pulled out, went up. Time to do a church expansion. You need to care about God's house. Well, while there are many good reasons, I think, why we should be good stewards, and even I think we could have good reasons from the Bible, why we should make it aesthetically pleasing, our building, I don't think that's the point here. Remember, it's talking about the temple. What is the temple? The temple is the place where God dwells. Well, John 1 tells us that Jesus came and dwelt among us. You know, we long, no longer go to a temple to meet with God because we go not to a place, but we go through a person, Jesus. And this was clearly visualized when the veil in the temple, the curtain was torn in two. We no longer need to go there. Jesus made a way that we can all go in through him wherever we are. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. And we, as his body, are part of that temple. Thus Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The you there is plural. You, the people of God, are God's temple. And just as in Haggai, God shows concern that people honor his temple, the physical structure. In the New Testament, here in Corinthians, Paul is showing God cares about what you care about his temple, his people. Thus, the application for us from this passage is not that we should prioritize caring for our building, but rather that we should prioritize God's people. So what does it look like to prioritize God's people? It means that we need to be building relationships with believers and intentionally seeking them to do, to do them spiritual good. You know, this is the implication of Hebrews 10.24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to good deeds. Or Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another, encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is being, this is being purposeful. Not so much to seek programs, though programs aren't bad, but to seek to love and be engaged with God's people, His church. To deliberately seek to know how you can benefit their lives so that they can become more like Christ. That they may know more of God and seek to be more faithful to Him. That they may have greater satisfaction and joy in God. And this can take many forms how you do it. But basically, it's life on life. So think of ways of how you can get together with other people and be purposeful, though not obnoxious, in caring for them and pointing them to finding their satisfaction in Christ. You could take advantage of the many structured ways we already have. Sunday school, Sunday morning service, Wednesday night. Sometimes we have other studies, women's study night. And when we're here, be purposeful to talk to others. Really see how they're doing. Seek how you can engage them. 
And I said this in Sunday school because we had a similar theme, but you might be religious as I am. I eat 21 times a week. I don't miss one any week. Use those 21 meals and eat with someone. Hey, let's eat together. You're eating, I'm eating. Let's meet at the same place. You can even both bring your sack lunch. There's picnics and parks all over the place. You can meet in your office. But be purposeful because God cares about his temple. And don't just wait for others to seek you out. You seek others in this body. I don't know them. How can I get to know them? How could I get to know them better? Where are they struggling in life? How can I benefit them? Could even grab a meal after church. Hey, you're going to eat. I'm going to eat. Let's do it together. You could set up a regular time to meet with somebody. You don't have to do it. There's so many ways you could do it. However, just like the people in Haggai's day, we can think, well, it's not yet time. And if we think about it from a human perspective, it wasn't yet time. They were in the midst of a drought. They had foreign nations threatening them. Their money pockets were empty. However, the old sayings are true. When there is a will, there is a way. When there is not, there is an excuse. What you have time, what you make time for what you, you have time for what you make time for. That was a tongue twister. What do you have time for? What is a non-negotiable in your weekly calendar? I have a friend who would often boast, I've only been late to work one time in 15 plus years. And that time was because a police officer pulled me over incorrectly. He was quite proud of it, but he was regularly late to meetings and services. He prioritized what he needed to be on time on, and he showed it, because in 15 plus years, never late. And so what is it that you make time for? What will you not miss unless you're terribly sick? For most people, I'm not going to miss work. It's a non-negotiable. You're going to go to work. Well, does going to work have a greater priority than being with God's people? Now, I'm not saying I want you hacking in here every time you come, but if you would go to work, why is that more important than coming here? Is bad weather a reason not to go to a study or a prayer meeting? But you would actually go out in the same weather to buy groceries. Now, again, I'm not saying bad weather shouldn't keep you away, but if you go buy the groceries, don't you know that man can't live on bread alone? That he needs the word of God? Do we prioritize our physical needs, our food, more than we prioritize the fellowship with God's people? And in the church, I've seen so many good things that slowly morph into dominating an individual's or family's time. Sports are great, but are you more committed to getting to practice in games than prayer and times of fellowship? If you have to pick one or the other, which is the one that gets skipped? When you think of your college class schedule that you're planning, do you pick class times and a workload that will allow you to still be active with other believers? Or have you scheduled such a busy semester that all you can do is show up on a Sunday morning? Now, most parents I know, if their kid wakes up and goes, I don't want to go to school today, they go, I don't care, you're going to school. And yet, I know many more when their kid says, I don't want to go to church. They go, okay, why not today? Do we prioritize education more than being with God's people? 
Many people will say, we can't do that tonight. I got work tomorrow. We got school tomorrow. It's a school night. Saturday night? Do you say, tomorrow's worship? We can't do that tonight. We want to be alert and fresh to worship, to be with God's people. Or is Saturday night one of those nights you can stay up late because what's happening tomorrow? It's not as important as a work night or a school night. Now, the issue for Haggai and us is not that what they were doing was wrong. There's nothing wrong with sports. There's nothing wrong with education. There's nothing wrong with going, the weather's bad, I'm not going out. However, they were showing by their choices what had really become their priority. What they really said was best. You know, they weren't sinning actively. Rather, they'd lost focus and concern for God being primary in their life. And though there are many important things in life, they are not all of equal importance. And the question that Haggai wants them to consider is, what is the center around which life orbits? You know, the center that will cause everything else to orbit and spin around it, that is what you should focus on. And when the center of your life is Jesus, everything will spin as it should. But when the center of your life shifts to any of his good gifts, things in your life will start to spin and fly out of control. However, to be satisfied in God alone, we need his help. And that's what we see lastly in verses 12 through 15. They are stirred to satisfaction in God. It says in verse 12 that Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people, they obeyed the word of the Lord. The word for obey is kind of an interesting word. It can mean to hear or to obey. And you may have heard that Middle Eastern state saying, to hear is to obey. That's the idea. Now that's interesting because actually their failure to listen and obey was what sent them into exile. But now they are obeying. They are hearing God's word and doing what they should. Now notice, it says these are also the words of Haggai the prophet. Not merely Haggai's message that they need to hear, or not merely God's word, but God spoke through his messenger, his prophet, Haggai. And just as when God spoke through Moses to his people on Mount Sinai, so here the people fear the Lord, it tells us. This has a whole range of meaning, dread, respect, all amazement. When you come face to face with the creator of the universe, no other emotion can fully capture how we should respond as fear. Obedience and fear, the two responses they have, and they actually show the dual nature of the way should we should respond to God. You know, it's basically showing our response should be both internal and external. External because it leads to actions of obedience. Now many people think their relationship to God is merely internal. Wonderful feelings, experiences, Oh, isn't this great? Celebration. Except God is showing it's not just internal feelings. It also leads to external actions of obedience. But others are on the other end of the spectrum. How we should respond to God is duty, obedience. All we should do is obey. Yet Haggai is showing the proper response includes emotions. Fear, or as we saw earlier in the passage, delight. So as we respond to God, it's not just duty. It's not just delight. A proper response to God has delight in Him and a duty to obey Him. Do you have a complete response to God? Are you both delighting in Him and dutifully obeying Him? 
Well, verse 13, God commissions Haggai to tell the people he is with them. The task they undertook was not only for them to do, but God was going to be right there with them, working with them. And whenever God has an important task for his people, God reassures them of his presence. When Moses questioned, well, who am I to talk to Pharaoh? God replied, but I will be with you. When God called Gideon to take on the Midianites, he said, God is with you. When King David planned a temple, Nathan said, God is with you. Even today, when we have a doctor's appointment we're nervous about, or a meeting we need to go to, we say, will you come with us? Our friend's presence gets us through. We don't just have a friend's presence. The God of the universe is with us. The God of the universe has become our friend in Christ. And he says to us, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now notice what caused all this to happen. Verse 14, it says, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and all of the others. God stirred up the spirit of the leaders in the remnant. God motivated them by his spirit to do the task that he called them to do. Now you can read in Ezra chapter 1 verse 5 how God had stirred them up originally. And he has begun a good work and you will bring it to completion. As it says in Zechariah 4, 6, Not by might, not by power, but my by spirit, says the Lord Almighty. You know, we need God to empower and enable us to do the task that he has given us. Thus we must pray and ask for divine assistance that our church would be characterized by this same fearful and joyful obedience. Now you may have noticed in verse 15 that this happened on the 24th day of the month in the sixth month in the second year. Now if you relate that back to verse 1, when it was on the first day of the month, that means we've had passed, quick mental math, 23 days. I wrote it down in case I panicked. Nonetheless, 23 days. And I think that's important because it's showing that obedience may need planning. It may need preparing. It may need prioritizing. And not just powerful emotions. You see, repentance has real fruit. We must repent, as Paul, as Paul said, and have deeds of repentance showing our repentance. These people, it's late August, September. It's harvest time. They still got work to do, but they made it. We are going to obey. And this is a very important principle that has been largely lost in our evangelical world. And that is that we should look for the fruit of God's work, not just now, but in the future, in the long-term response, not just the immediate response. Now, the question shouldn't just be, well, how many people responded to the, the event or at the conference, but how many are responding 23 days later? Or not what did you do when you were younger, but what are you doing today? And as with people here, it may mean not just immediate actions, but planning. Like Haggai said, consider your ways. Not just consider your emotional state or your intellectual affirmations, though we should do those too. Consider your ways. Does your calendar, your efforts, your time, your money show that you're seeking first His kingdom? You know, many people think of God as a spoke on a wheel. They are the center of their life. And you know what? God is a great spoke. He, he kind of tops off 
this great life that I have. But God demands that He be the hub, the center of the wheel of our life, and that all of the spokes find meaning from Him. That our work, our hobbies, our time, our resources, they flow out. They make sense because of that center from which all else radiates. And if He's not the radiating center from which all else springs, then we need to be purposeful not just to feel guilty right now, boy, the pastor really let us have it now, but to change. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. What's going to be happening 23 days from now? You know, it's a dangerous thing to feel guilty and do nothing about it. Guilt without long-term change is a recipe for a long-term disastrous life. Consider your ways. Have you found satisfaction? We want satisfaction. We want our life to have meaning and purpose. However, we think that it's going to be found in seeking it for ourselves. Yet Jesus warns us, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You know, the greatest obstacle to our satisfaction is not other people. It's not in bad economies. It's not anything outside of us. The greatest destruction to our satisfaction is our sin. And the way it ruins our relationship with God and the way it lies to us. And yet Jesus lived out this very truth. He gave his life so that we might have life. He was satisfied in fulfilling the Father's pleasure. And in a twist on words, that satisfied the Father's judgment. The satisfaction of Christ led to God's satisfaction in our place. And by trust in Him, we know that we're completely forgiven, accepted, and redeemed. The solution is not then to continue living a life that's pursuing self-focused joy, but instead seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness To sing and live, I will glory in my Redeemer. My life He bought. My love He owns. I have no longing for another. I'm satisfied in Him alone. Let's pray.